Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a Locker Room Production. Welcome. Can you hear me? Am I working? Yes, I am working. Welcome back to the latest Love Tennis Podcast. I'm George Belshaw. I'm going to start off with some congratulations. First of all, uh, to Novak Djokovic for surpassing Roger Federer. Terrific achievement. And then to my good friend, uh, Georgia um gg who has started a new job today uh off the back of thrashing me at fantasy tennis so uh, she's a very good tennis player good friend who i play with all the time so i thought i'd give her a special congratulations to go with novak just to keep the fans happy um and congratulations to james and calvin well c- congratulations to james ten thirty as well this weekend happy yeah. birthday james feeling very old two-day hangovers are a real thing pretty much as soon as I hit 30, uh, two-day hangovers became a thing. And waking up at five in the morning to go to the loo, um, that, they're the two things that happen in your 30s, it seems. It's nightmarish. Um, but thank you very much for uh, giving that everyone that little nugget of information. I didn't need it. Um, <laughs> Calvin, if you can remember your 30th, were the 30s worse than the 40s or were the 50s the best ones? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know about the 50s. Uh, those were pretty good. They're all they're all pretty good, aren't they? Uh, but then again, I'm, I'm I'm single and don't have any kids, so um, I, I, I guess I know a couple of my mates are uh, not that and just turned forty, and I, I think that they uh, they don't have the same opinion as I do. Right. Okay. Well, there's, there's some easy tips for life there. Um, yes, as George mentioned, we do have some other congratulations there. Um, Novak Djokovic surpassing Roger Federer's record, 311 weeks career total of world number one just to clarify as well because i saw someone mentioning on twitter it doesn't include like march to august last year when obviously he was number one but the tour had shut down so those weeks aren't included in case anyone thought there might be a technicality there and that he'd had some free weeks at world number one although frankly he probably deserves them because he's that good and um, we kind of talked about this last week when he equaled roger federer's record and also about four months ago when we worked out that he was going to do that, even if no tennis really happened. Um, Noah Joffrey is an extremely good tennis player. He's probably the greatest of all time. I think we can probably leave it at that unless anyone's got anything that they couldn't say last week about Novak Djokovic that they want to say this week. No, I didn't think so. Let's move on because Roger Federer is back. The real goat. Uh, that, no, I mean, that, that has just infuriated about two-thirds of the tennis population. Uh, but Roger Federer is indeed back this week. He's playing on Wednesday against either 
Jeremy Shardy or Dan Evans. We'll maybe talk about that matchup briefly because I have some thoughts on it. Um, but Roger Federer has been talking, which is always news. It almost doesn't matter what he says, even though it's rarely that interesting. Uh, for once, I think it's fair to say he was quite interesting. Talking, you know, he has now been out 13 and a half months without a competitive game of tennis since he was battered by Novak Djokovic in Australia last year. And he, he said that the story is not over um, and that he's never not considering retirement unless unless his knee really, really does keep going. Um, George, what did you make of his, his first big press conference back? Yeah, I mean, I thought he was quite open and honest about, you know, the setbacks he had last year and the disappointments of that second knee surgery, which I, I suppose is blatantly obvious. No one's ever really going to be that delighted to have to go through two rounds of surgery rather than one. But, um, you know, he, he does seem pretty set on carrying on as long as he can carry on. And I, I think I sensed a big motivation in him to get back to playing big matches against the best players in front of crowds. Um, you know, that that seems to be quite a big driving factor for him, that he still wants to be involved in that big occasion. And you hear athletes talk about this quite a lot, don't you? That the biggest thing to come away from is actually losing the fans, losing the adrenaline of coming out and playing those big tournaments, those big moments. You know, footballers saying they don't know what to do when they don't have people chanting their name once they retire. And you kind of got the feeling that's what Federer's thinking. But at the same time, he's caveating it with... But if my knee's buggered, then I may have to stop in a few months. So quite interesting, quite revealing. Uh, but yeah, as we've said, good to have him back. And it'll be, I think he said something like he's expecting to be 100% around Wimbledon if all goes to plan. And the grass season's when the season starts for him, uh, in inverted commas. So yeah, a lot to watch out for. I wouldn't necessarily expect amazing things next week. But this is Roger Federer after all, and he's, he's pretty handy at tennis. So I'm sure he'll be not too bad. Calvin, I know you, you've spoken to a few people who, who've been hit, hitting with him pretty much since November, I think. Um, he, he's been, uh, my impression from what you said, is he's been quite close to being in good shape for quite a long time. This isn't, he's not rushed back for Doha, has he? No, definitely not. Um, from what I understand, he's he's been hitting, he's definitely been hitting since November, um, I assume. I, I don't know loads of details about it, but... I assume he's been moving a lot more recently, and I think he he would only play if if he thought he was 100% ready to play um, and ready to complete the season. The only thing when I saw I, I didn't see the see the actual press conference. I saw the quotes, and I saw he said he he was hoping to be 100% ready for Wimbledon and the season start. And I wondered whether that suggested he's around for he's planning on next season as well next year as well or was it that he he meant that's when his season starts like you yeah. just said yeah i think i think it was the latter um, right okay so he, i think he was saying the grass is where the season starts um right the 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 other thing i was just going to say about him being ready is i mean look, there's a lot of talk that he was totally fine and ready for australia and just really didn't fancy two week quarantine and that sort of thing dragging mm-hmm. his family and stuff so you know Okay, it'll be interesting to see where his knee goes from here. But yeah, I, I mean, you're totally right. In terms of his preparation, this this isn't too big of a rush. Um, but yeah, he, I think he also he said it's like riding a bike again, and he'll have no problems playing tennis. And he was quite, you know, he was quite open and honest about that. Yeah, I always find his comparison uh, to talking about training quite interesting compared to Rafa and Novak because they're always like 
I need to hit, you know, a thousand balls to feel ready. And you get the sense Federer <laughs> picks up the racket and he's just like, yeah, I don't need to practice too hard. I, I just have this natural gift. So I'm not too worried about him from the tennis side of things. No, definitely not. Um, I think just a couple of other little things that that I picked up on as well was when he said he mentioned something about uh, wanting to play in front of full crowds again, and I think that would give us some indication that if if we're not getting full stadiums in this year, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see if he's, his knee holds up to see him still playing. I think we'll see him play a almost a full season with full crowds, regardless of when that may be, uh, whether that be in the the summer and autumn, all 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 over, or whether that be next season. Well, presumably as well that you know there's a huge financial implication there. I know that Roger Federer is a multi multi millionaire. I think he's about to become tennis's first ever billionaire, actually. Um, but he, you know, he, he he's astonishingly rich. But the one thing we know about rich people is you can always be richer. And you know the the prospect of his final year in tennis was going to be a big money spinner. We've spoken about appearance fees. There, the the check is blank when you're signing Roger Federer for your tournament for the last year. I mean, he would have made a fortune, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think also uh, this sort of uh, this something I quickly wanted to move on to, which is related to that. Um, I don't know whether it's got much attention, but he's going to be playing for the first time in these new shoes, um, which is a company yeah. that I think he owns, um, which is a, a sort of huge change because he's, he's he's obviously he was with Nike his whole career. Uh, he changed apparel which was quite a big thing. But changing shoes for a tennis player is is huge. And what's going to be interesting with that is that whenever a new company comes and starts making shoes, that there's normally a lot of a lot of teething problems initially. I remember when Murray changed to Under Armour, he was going for a full year, uh, basically trying to find a shoe that he liked. And about what's interesting, I think basically like you'll find that in the top 500 tennis players, about... 430 of them will play with with either Nike, Asics or Adidas shoes, maybe some Wilson or or that kind of thing thrown in. So it's going to be interesting to see this company that's come out of the blue trying to make tennis shoes out of nowhere. I'm I'm going to be interested to see how that pans out because I'd be surprised if it's seamless. Yeah, I mean, mean, further on the the clothing point, I mean, he obviously pretty much just got the RF logo back as well um, when he before I think he had it in that Australian Open he last played or yeah. just after in the event I can't remember whether it was in the exhibition or in that but he pretty much just had one event with that as well um, so uh, you know there's definitely a lot of lucrative streams to come with that um, I thought the other, the other thing I was going to pull out from the conference that I thought was quite interesting was how he basically conceded the goat stuff i think and kind of said look i am a i'm now the kind of measuring stick for rafa uh, novak like how pete sampras was to me and almost i I don't want to say diminishing their achievements but almost kind of saying well it's easy to chase the number when it's there but actually (laughs) setting the numbers hard i I don't know maybe that's a little bit harsh assessment of how he's putting it but he's probably right isn't he to a degree i mean i I always say this about my little brother with, you know, stuff like exam results and stuff. You know, he, he can always come out and say, oh, yeah, I got better results than you. It's like, well, you knew what you had to beat, mate. You know, but what? <laughs> I was setting the bar. <laughs> it's interesting with that, though. And I, I remember a, a mentor of mine, um, Keith Reynolds, who's a sort of brilliant tennis mind. And I once had a conversation with him about Federer, maybe about seven or eight years ago. And we he sort of said then he thought that Federer was now in a stage where, 
he wasn't really that bothered about winning things anymore. He was trying to see where he could take the game, whether he could sort of test the parameters of what's possible in things like when he was trying the Sabre and that kind of thing. And, and sort of winning, it's kind of moved to he'd won enough now. He was trying to experiment with what he can do. Um, and then, of course, he started winning Grand Slams again. So maybe that changed, but um, you wonder whether he'll have another sort of go at that, whether he can sort of, you know, how much he can serve volley. Can you still win Wimbledon serve volley and that kind of thing? And um, Or what? It, it's sort a of uncharted like when you, territory, really. Like when you've completed a video game and, and it's like, you know, it's pretty <laughs> yeah. rogue and you just sort of go and yeah, try might, and do stuff. Come back with a two-handed backhand or something. And, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> speaking of video games I went for a walk this is very off topic and random but I thought you might quite enjoy this like, um, my, my dad's a bit of an obsessive about stuff and sometimes just goes through like, really weird f- phases of things he gets into so it was younger, I think this like... happens to, to men later in life he <laughs> so used to like love watching Sherlock Holmes for example obsessively for about a six month period and then it was Star Trek then he moved on to like video games and stuff and I saw my brother um, this week for the first time in a while because he's come back to London to work and uh, he said his my dad's latest phase is playing Grand Theft Auto and so good that just popped into my head there when you saw about completing the game because apparently he's completed every mission on the game so much and his, his favourite thing is now just like running around getting himself onto five stars and just surviving all the time so you know that might be a kind of a weird parallel between Federer and my father that uh, no one else will ever come up with again I mean as someone who has completed GTA 5 GTA 5 five times uh, yeah, I mean, I can completely relate with it. It's a great game, and there's a lot you can do with it. And people still, you know, that game came out nine years ago. People still play it loads. We've got distracted a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Just a bit. To bring us back, I mean, there are no good tennis video games. I don't know why. There's some okay used, ones. Used to be Top Spin, I used to really like when I was a kid. Mm. Um, Virtue they... is okay, but it's a bit arcadey. They really struggle to get the image rights again, and this this is another general problem. For, uh, we are really going off on a tangent here, so I won't go on too long. But at least we're you know, on tennis now. We are on tennis, <laughs> so that's good. Um, it's a but, modest improvement. You know, and actually, this is moving into football a little bit now in terms of like FIFA are kind of worried about or EA Sports are getting challenged on right, having the yeah. rights for all the players and stuff. That that's creeping into football, but that that's for a long time been a big problem for tennis. And if you look back at a lot of these games, I'm not really sure there is one that has Nadal, Federer, Murray, and Djokovic in the same game. I don't think they could there ever was, afford them. I might EA be wrong. Sports, one or two. EA Sports one about seven years ago that had uh, Federer and Nadal. I don't uh, Federer and Djokovic, sorry, and I don't remember having Nadal. But yeah, I can I can see that the image rights thing is massively, massively, and that's in the end. You know, there's a reason that everyone plays FIFA and no one plays yeah. Pro Evo. I don't even know if they is still it, make is Pro it, Evo. It's hugely, hugely detrimental to sports not having a good video game. Like it, it's mm-hmm. just absolutely stupid. Like they well, should, the players should sign up to an ATP Tour video game and force players to sign on it. Particularly in this country as well, we have no video game and it's not on television. Yeah, which is mm. which is a huge thing. And sort of just quickly on that, it's funny. A, a mate of mine was saying yesterday that he doesn't and he works in sports and used to be a tennis player, um, a professional tennis player. And he was saying he doesn't know he doesn't know who 
the current Grand Slam owners, uh, current Grand Slam winners are outside of um, Nadal winning the French. And mm. it's just sort of drifted. You've lost that unless you specifically turn on to watch the tennis. You've you've lost that. Um, yeah. What what we have in the minute, and I think it, it's a major problem. Mm, huge. I mean, you know, God help us if the BBC lose Wimbledon because because then then you really are. I mean, I, I imagine you know, George, you're you're pretty involved in the local tennis scene, but oh, so, um, you're shaking your head at me. I, I'm shaking your head to say that I know Wimbledon will not renege on that deal. They are not stupid. <laughs> like they understand yeah. how well, but, important yeah. that broadcast yeah. deal is. Like they've had a lot of money put on the table in the past and turned it down. Like they they understand the serious exposure that BBC brings to them. Um, I think it's I, I think sort of part of it is because in foot you can do it with football because people will tune in to watch who they support. But yeah. apart from the lunatics who we sometimes talk about, no one, <laughs> most tennis fans don't support a tennis player. They like watching tennis. Or most yeah. people who sort of are interested in tennis, they just like watching tennis. So it's unlikely you're going to, I mean, even just the sort of tuning into it. I've got Prime on my television. It's it's not a grind, but it's a sort of two, three minute jobs going through the apps and that kind yeah. of thing, rather than just not pressing fine, yeah. 410. Um, mm. So, yeah, anyway. Yeah, it is, it is frustrating. Uh, and it, yeah, as I say, I imagine trying to book a court the week after Wimbledon anywhere in the country is a nightmare. And that tells you everything you need to know about what a broadcast deal can do for tennis. Um, you know, even even the French Open being on ITV4, I think, makes a difference. Uh, partly just because I love the novelty. I like sport on weird freeview channels. You know, like when, when Dave have got the Bundesliga rights or something, it really it just makes me happy from a from a bizarre perspective. Um, we did get slightly distracted. We should maybe, in a, in a quiet week during the off-season, do something on tennis video games. Um, I'm sure it'll be a, an interesting topic. And tell, Let us know what your favourite tennis video game was. Um, drop us a tweet at Love Tennis Pod. It'd be great to hear what your memories of the games are, whether it was Virtue or Topspin. Yeah, that was a very good one. And EA's brief, brief foray into tennis. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Dan Evans uh, versus Jeremy Shardy because that is, of course, the game um, in Doha this week which will determine who Roger Federer plays uh, in his first uh, match against, uh, well, I guess I say, against either Evans or Shardy. Um, George Federer's got a bye, obviously, in the first round. I have a feeling, because Jeremy Shardy's playing very well at the moment and is in some form that this might not be a straightforward game for for Dan Evans, even though Evo should be winning it on paper. Yeah, I mean, the amount of people I've said, <laughs> seen writing, oh, it's definitely going to be Evans playing him. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I don't know where where people get such confidence in British players. I've never found that. Um, but no, look, I mean, Dan, you like to think now is, you know, on, on this sort of surface is going to be pretty tough to beat on an indoor hard I'd, I'd just probably say that's his best surface um, is it indoor is it indoor, no, indoor. oh it's outdoor. it's outdoor excuse yeah. me I've lost my head well okay on hard court he's pretty good then um, yeah look, I think that that was a good one that's gone well um, yeah. you know I, I think <laughs> you know, Dan's consistency well I was going to just say I think his consistency generally on hard court is pretty good nowadays outside of the slams I think you know he's pretty comfortably top 30 Shardy is a funny player who can turn up, play big and win, but, you know, you, you, you're backing Dan to come through that. And it'll be, it'll be interesting because he's well, practiced I, I, with I, Roger a lot. 
Um, mm-hmm. they've, they've got I mean, a just, interesting relationship. My, my, my concern is that Shardy's in decent nick. He played in Rotterdam last week. He beat Hugo Umber. He beat uh, David Goffin. You know, both of it. well, Umber maybe less so, but there are similarities between someone like Goffin and, and Evo, I suppose, in some ways. I, I just... I just wonder, and then it took Andre Rublev to beat him, and we'll come on to Andre Rublev. But I just, I just would worry. Anyway, the match may already have finished. Um, if 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 you're listening to this uh, back on the podcast, so uh, you'll already know the result. But if it is Dan Evans, because Calvin, you know him reasonably well, uh, I think I think even he might think that he's up against it against Federer. Yeah, the difficult the the difficulty I think that that Evo may have against Federer is that they're they're sort of quite similar uh, mm. in the, in what they try and do and Federer's at that particular style of play is definitely the best that has ever lived playing like that mm. and he, he you know he might he might be the best that's ever lived at any style of play but certainly at the sort of skillful one-handed all-court game game style there's no question who's the best of all time so it's not in that respect. It's not a good matchup, but we're going into the unknown with Federer. We have, we really have no idea. You know, when we look at how Andy Murray's come back, if, if he's gone off as much, if he's lost as much as Andy Murray has in that time, then you'd have to think Evo wins that. Um, mm. But I guess we'll have some idea, sort of twenty minutes into the match, where we're at with it. I, mm. I'm pretty yeah. sure Evans. Oh, sorry, I'm pretty sure Federer is going to beat either Evans or Shardy, regardless of how much he's played. That's my. I, th- I think it's not how much he's played that's the problem. It's, it's what his what shape his body is in if he yeah. can move that kind of thing. It's a year without a match. That's a long time. I still just when you think I, about it. I think the thing, thing with Federer that means I don't worry about him so much is that I just think he wins so many free points on serve. Still, like yeah. He, yeah. you know, okay, maybe the knee is going to affect the serve, but his serves generally. Even if he takes it down a bit of a notch, he's putting it in in the corners so well that he, he yeah. does kind of keep control of the matches in that sense. Um, mm. And Dan will give him chances to break. So I just, if if it is Dan and Shardy, I don't fancy Shardy against big players typically. Like you know, mm. the best. So yeah, I, I'm expecting Federer to win. But look, let's hope it's Dan and hope it's a good match. And if he plays yeah. to his potential, then yeah. But let's wait and see. You know, I had, a, I had a good moment just kind of remembering Roger Federer because I was writing about him today in the eye and I was just sort of not forgotten who Roger Federer is, but it's like, well, I've not seen him play tennis in more than a year, you know. So I kind of went back and I watched um, the highlights of, of his match against Novak Djokovic for the Australian Open, his last match, and he lost in straight sets. But in, in the second game of the match, he's break point up and he hits this, this ball, like, you know, Djokovic drives his backhand across the Federer's backhand and he's not even looking at it. You know, it's a proper backhand. His his full back is facing Djokovic and he just basically on the half volley knocks it down the line into the corner. And it just made, it just got me thinking, if we get six months of Federer in good shape against the likes of Djokovic and the next gen in the top 10, I'll be delighted just to see some matchups like that again. I was going to add to that. I think like one of the things I would say has been like the most unique things I've seen as a uh, well, I was going to say a tennis fan member, a tennis reporter. You know, going and sitting up close and watching Federer 
like really, really close. Just doing the most, and this is gonna sound so weird, but like the most simple things, like how he passes the balls back to ball kids. Like there's such a cool <laughs> nonchalance to where he'll just like permanently deflect it, perfect, like straight into their hands. Like it's a really weird thing that you don't appreciate unless you're like right down there up close. Just how like suave this guy is. Like everything he does is just like so casual. Um, I don't know. I, I think he's he's definitely one of those sportsmen that you. Okay, you can appreciate his elegance on TV, but there's an extra level to what this guy's like in the flesh. And I, I think it'll be such a crying shame if if we were to get into a situation where, you know, he doesn't get this farewell lap of the world and doesn't get a chance for people to see him and doesn't get to do all these exhibitions that he started doing in these countries that don't get to see tennis that often. You know, I think it'd be a big shame because he is a special, special athlete. Yeah, and it, it's it's true, you know, someone like Novak Djokovic, he, the things that he does that are really physically remarkable are kind of overt, you know, when, when he's got his ankles bent at absurd angles and, you know, he's stretching to make these incredible gets that he does, or when Nadal is doing what he does and, you know, running back and forth across the baseline 40 times and hitting balls around the net and swerving them around players up at the net you can kind of appreciate it. But I know what you mean about Federer. I remember when he had a practice session on one of the outside courts at Wimbledon, you know, which I think he tries to avoid doing because it's a bit of a nightmare. And, you know, I think there were more people around like court 13 or whatever it was than were on the entirety of the rest of the site. And yeah, you know, he's getting applause for like, yeah, basically deflecting balls to his coach and stuff. Uh, It's a special moment. Yeah, the the way you compare Nadal and Djokovic to Federer is like how I always think think about it. It's like Nadal and Djokovic, I think have reached probably higher heights. Possible. Well, Djokovic definitely. Nadal certainly on clay has reached about as high a height as you can. But when you watch them, like it looks so hard work. Like you can really appreciate how difficult it is. Like Novak's ridiculous stretching or the huge power and spin Rafa kind of generates off his forehand. If you watch Roger, like it, it just always looks so effortless, so easy, so cool, so calm. You know, I th- there's a, a really, really special quality that comes with that. That I think people, certainly in in Britain, have been kind of you know captured by because he, he particularly on the grass, particularly in all white, there's just an, a kind of airy floatiness that's come about this bloke. Um, yeah. So there's a kind of synergy between his image the grass of Wimbledon and the whole Wimbledon image that, that just fits very, very well. Yeah. You know, it's why it's why I think, um, maybe I don't think, but I would like perhaps Stefanos Tsitsipas to be the next <laughs> guy who wins a lot at Wimbledon rather than, say, Daniil Medvedev, because it would feel more right. I don't know <laughs> why, but there's something about the style of the two men that I feel... If, if Medvedev wants to win loads of Australians, that's fine by me, put it that way. <laughs> Um, speaking of people who make the game look very easy, Andy Murray? No. He's a McGann who often makes tennis look very hard, not because he's bad at it, just because everything looks hard. Um, he is his back uh, to a certain extent. He picked up his first tour win uh, of the year, I think just after we recorded last week, or was it just before? I can't remember now. Um, during, anyway, wasn't it? It was during, during yeah. During, exactly. Because he went, annoyingly, he went to three sets and we couldn't get the result in. Um, but Andre Rublev was next up for him, and he was beaten. Um, I don't know who wants to offer their analysis of Murray's defeat to Rublev first, but 
Uh, George, you, you tend to be the most foremost with your opinion. Yeah, I'll, I'll go first, and then Calvin can give you the quality after. Um, <laughs> I thought the first set was really good from Murray on the whole. Um, I think he stuck with him pretty well. Obviously, a relatively rare racket smash, I'd say, from Murray towards the end. I can't really good remember one. the last time. Good Big one. one. Well-struck well ra- racket smash. Yeah. Um, couple of double faults, five all in that set to hand Rublev the break um, and then kind of fell away a bit again I'd say you know, Rublev's a player who's winning at this level all the time I think it's something like a 20 match win streak at ATP 500 so it's it's not like a bad guy to lose to um, and a good another good win for Rublev as well we should say because we were questioning whether he would maybe find it harder going against a name like Murray um, mm. But I think I think there were positive signs again, and you know I, I I know I sound like a broken record with Murray, but I do just think we'll see in a few months where he's at. But I think these sort of matches will give him confidence that okay, yeah, I lost in straight sets, but ten games of that, I was right there with a guy who's not losing to this level, who's beating Sissipas in finals, and giving him a good go. And on another day when my serve's going to be better, which it will be in three months because I've been playing matches and I've been in those positions, feeling better about myself. That sort of thing won't happen and it'll go to a tiebreak and maybe it'll go my way and then I'll get the run in the second set. You know, it, it is always such fine margins. Um, and and yeah, just with the Haas one as well, I mean, he didn't play well in that match at all. Like, he was poor, um, mm. really. And he still kind of came through and won it so you know there are positives to take he cares he still wants to do it I'm pretty sure he's going to get there and he's still saying I think I can win Wimbledon I'm not sure about that but I I think I've said it before if he is fit for these next few months gets himself to Wimbledon there aren't many people who want to play Andy Murray on grass still Mm. Calvin what was your assessment of that that defeat to Rublev uh, for the first for the first set, I thought he played very well. I thought he was really impressive. And he was probably slightly the better player, I think, until that point. I think that's why he was so frustrated that when he got broke, it wasn't anything to do with Rublev being better than him or his body or anything like that. He threw in a, I think he threw in a forehand error and a couple of double faults. And I think that's what must be so frustrating for him. That's match tightness. Um, one of the th- we, we we sort of he's telling us things that we can tick off boxes things we can tick off. He can obviously we've seen he can play tennis that is a top ten level. He has the capability to do that. What we still don't know is whether he can maintain that for a full match, uh, b uh, a full tournament or matches in a row. And, and definitely the last step would be, a, a, can he do it over five sets and at Grand mm-hmm. Slams? Can he train enough to be able to do that? That's still the questions I've got is he built his career on just being physically better than everybody else. And can mm-hmm. he still, he, he won't be able to train like that anymore. Apart from anything else, he's, he's 33 years old. But can he, can he, can he change his game enough to be able to compete when he can't do his, eight times 400 metres in Florida at the end of the season. Do, do we think there's something to be said that he might eventually find it easier to re- play and recover at Grand Slams with that daybreak compared to this level of tournament? Do we think that's something that could maybe, maybe, but he's also got to go five sets as well. So he, he might have a day off, but he might have also played for an extra hour and a half if he, if he wins. 
I think that's the thing. I still think if he's going to main, if he's going to carry on playing for the rest of this year, if he's going to play next year and beyond that, I don't know what his plans are. And if he's going to be at a level, I think I still think he's going to have to change his game a bit. I don't think this sort of. I think he's going to have to be more aggressive. He's going to have to go after a lot more shots. I think he's going to have to come to the net a lot more. He's a brilliant volleyer. I think he's going to have to take some risks on that. It's whether he, in the moment, whether he just reverts the type of the way he's always played. But I can't see him playing the style he's always played and getting to the latter stages of slams. It's interesting because I think in that first kind of Chinese swing where he beat Berrettini and guys like that, in that little spell around then, not necessarily in those matches per se, but there was definitely an element of more aggression and a lot more going to the net. And that, I, that does seem to have gone a bit again. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if that is a confidence thing or just a further belief, actually, that he can get back to what he's doing. But it, but it is an interesting change because he he seemed to me anyway, and this, this is always from a relative outside perspective, just from what we're seeing... He did seem to accept there would have to be that change a year and a half ago, but doesn't seem like it's a change he's willing to accept so much now. Yeah, maybe, maybe think, so. No, I'm sorry, James. Well, I think he might be more willing to accept. I think what I learned from the the post match against Rublev, you know, it was a great it was a great press conference. Andy Murray's not always been a great press conferencer but he, he is a great thinker about the game I think you know a thinker about sport you know he was talking about football in his press conference and the effect that uh, there was a study into what the effect behind closed doors had had and he was talking in other areas like a rookie you know he was saying oh it's it's really good for me not to go and play challenges but to come and play these events and share the court with guys like this and and learn about this level and I thought, well, hang on, this is a multiple Grand Slam champion, a former world number one, and he's talking about learning at this level. And I think he's got this pretty incredible humility about his current condition. He says, you know, I'm playing tennis with a metal hip. That's quite hard. And I think he is willing to learn and willing to change his game. He might not be able at the moment because, you know, there's a repetition required to, to break all that muscle memory he's got of years of being a grinder. But... I take it back to when um, Tiger Woods had his back surgery, his last back surgery, and they fused two of his vertebrae in his back. And he sacked his coach because he said, well, this, this guy has no idea what's going to happen. And no one does because he'd had an operation that they give people in their 50s and 60s to you know, make sure that they can still walk around. No one had ever had this operation and tried to play professional tennis. And, and Murray's kind of in similar waters where... No one has really had this operation and gone back to singles at the level he's trying to play at. Leighton Hewitt had it, and I think played for not for very much longer. Uh, one of the Bryan brothers obviously had it and was still playing a bit of doubles, but again, not with ease. So, you know, Murray is in uncharted waters here, and I think he's got a mindset that says, I will do things differently if I have to. And I, I think we all know him well enough to know that he's going to, he's not going to leave any stone unturned at this point, is he, Calvin? No, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great thinker. He's, he may be the greatest thinker on, on the tour uh, for over the last sort of 15 years. There's no question about that. And nobody will know more about what he has to do than Andy does. It's whether he's willing to do it in the big moments. I think that's the thing. It wouldn't surprise me mm-hmm. if, if sort of in certain matches he's going to serve volley a lot more, he's going to serve and come to the net. 
it's if in those big moments, like, say, when he's 5-all, first set against Rublev, is he going to serve volley on one? Is he going to hit a return and come in at 5-6 down or 5-4 up or something like that? I think that that's where, or, or do you revert to what you've always done in those pressure moments? I think that's what mm. I'm, I'm talking about. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Um, well, the man who beat him, Andre Rublev, I mean, there's no shame in losing to him on any day, but particularly not at the moment. And George, as you mentioned, he's on an incredible winning streak, especially at ATP 500. This is his fourth ATP 500 win in a row. Um I mean, this is this is. I know we talk a lot about Andre Rublev, specifically that he's brilliant at dispatching guys, you know, outside of the top ten. But he did beat a top ten player in the final. In fairness, he, in the semi final, sorry, in Stefano Tsitsipas, um, he beat Martin Fuksovic in straight sets in the final. Uh, as I say, it's four ATP 500 titles in a row. He won the ATP Cup as well. I mean, this this guy's a form player, George, isn't he? Yeah, it's you know <laughs> a high high quality player. I mean, we the doubts we've raised over Rublev have mainly been playing a, a top top five player. I would say at a Grand Slam, that that's where you look at Rublev and you think, I don't believe he's going to go into that match and win it. Um, but I'd give him a pretty good chance against anyone at best of three at the minute, particularly when you consider comments you're getting from like Novak and Rafa where they're so focused on the slams now. You know, Roger, similarly, probably, well, he, he might be a little bit more up for the 500s given he's chasing Jimmy Connors' title record. Who knows? But, you know, I, I'd give Rublev a pretty strong chance against anyone at the minute apart from Daniel Medvedev, really, and that's just because he's got such a bad record against him. And I'm, I'm talking just in best of three. But, you know, it'll be interesting. I it, I have to say, I never really saw Rublev as a Grand Slam champion, um, but my head's starting to turn a little bit that he might be able to sneak one, perhaps. I think I think what's worth saying, uh, I found myself saying it earlier in the week when Medvedev and Zverev, I mean, Alexander Zverev says that he, he turned up on Friday, practised every day, twice a day, and he didn't win a single practice set and promptly was dumped out in straight sets. Uh, and didn't seem that bothered about it because he said that the balls were awful. Calvin, I think you agreed that the Technofiber balls were not particularly pleasant. The the courts were quite low as well. And Zverev said, well, frankly, this, is, this isn't going to be my day. But Daniil Medvedev was beaten as well. I think six of the top eight seeds went out inside the first two rounds. Uh, nevertheless, if you think about the heyday of, of the likes of the guys that were asking these younger lads to displace, you know, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, them losing any match at any level was news, and still yeah. is. And and, yeah. and that I think is a huge mentality thing. Yeah, you can say a little bit about the balls. They're they're, they're a type of ball that they don't play with regularly, and and at that level, it, it it's noticeable. It can make quite a bit of difference. Uh, and the court, as I, I didn't play on it, so I don't know what it's like. But like you say, those lot they need to step up. It, it's pathetic for them to be losing the type of the amount of matches that they're losing at the minute if they've got sort of aspirations of, of being the greats of all time. Any any of those greats, you know, even if you go back to Agassi, Sampras, Becker, it, it, like you said, it was news when they lost at any stage of tournaments and to be sort of bombing out first round of Rotterdam uh, is not what you'd be looking at from that level of player. Mm. I, mean, the, the, I was just going to say, I mean, the Medvedev 
match was one of the most bonkers set of highlights I think I've ever seen in my life this week. I mean, yeah, he, it is so funny the shift that has happened to Medvedev since Australia. I mean, there were signs that he lost his kind of this mental calm that had been there in this twenty match win streak against uh, Krajinovic in what, what was that the third or fourth round um, when he started like shouting at his coach. You know, before that, Medvedev had been kind of like. I'm not going to react to anything. I'm not going to celebrate mm-hmm. when I win. There's this mental zen. And you could sense there was a little change there. Then there was the kind of outburst against Djokovic, the Australian Open final where he fell away and struggled. Yeah. And it, it's carried on <clears throat> into this sort of level of tournament. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised how long this hangover is going to kind of go. I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I know he's going to be world number two next week, guaranteed, um, regardless of what he does. But, you know, he, he needs to quickly remember how to win matches. I mean, there were, were still some phenomenal shot making in there, but the he- the head losses have just come back out of nowhere. And he, this was something that plagued him in his earlier um, career. I, I don't know if you remember that famous incident at Wimbledon where he was chucking coins at the umpire's chair. You know, he'd beaten Stan Wawrinka <laughs> in the first round of that tournament and then he goes out straight after <laughs> lobbing coins. And having, You know, he, he is capable of... He's a, he's a mad man. I, I really like him, like, in terms of a character. He's great for the sport because you never quite know going to know what's going to happen. But it is just so bizarre that he, he seems to have this all under control. <laughs> he's just spiralled out of control again. Well, he's got, if you ask me, a pretty soft draw in Marseille this week. I think he's got either the great Igor Gerasimov um, or a chap called Yannick Hampfman, who's 105 in the world, who I don't know a huge amount about, uh, in his second round uh, matches it'll be. And then he might he might have Yannick Sinner in the quarterfinals, though. So um, I think we'll be interested to see uh, how that one pans out. A, a nice last, uh, last 16 tie in that tournament, by the way. Hugo Gaston against uh, potentially Yannick Sinner, um, two kind of up-and-coming talents of the world at slightly different stages of their career, but maybe a match to watch out for in Marseille. Uh, but they haven't got fans, unfortunately. They do have fans. Um, well, they have some fans in Doha, you, you know, as many as they always do. It's quite hard to tell if they're social distancing or just not selling any tickets, but um, it's quite hard to tell anything that's happening in Tar, actually, as, as I found out today. But that's a story um, for another day. And I've lost myself in my running order, which is why I'm now rambling. Where's my running order gone? It's completely unfair. Could be the Clara Towson title. Might be a good one oh, to jump yes, to. that's why my mind had gone blank. I meant to go through my, my role of honour. Uh, I had done Andre Rublev. Diego Schwartzman <laughs> uh, picked up a title in his home country of Argentina, beating the other Cherondolo brother. You may remember that last week we discussed Fran, uh, Juan Manuel Cherandolo, who was a shock winner in his first ever ATP level event. Well, his brother, Francisco Cherandolo, uh, got to the final uh, in, Ar- in the Argentina Open and probably lost uh, one and two to Diego Schwartzman. Um, so slightly underwhelming performance. Maybe he swapped with his brother for the day, I don't know. Um, but yes, uh, as you mentioned, George, Clara Tutausen. Uh, Denmark's finest. Uh, she picked up a title without dropping a set. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, she's someone I think we've picked out before. It was, I think it was the French Open, maybe was it this year or the year before? I can't remember. Anyway, she. My memory's going these days. I'm getting old, just like you, mm. James, getting into your thirties. I'm getting yeah, late twenties. They're killing me off here. Um, 
but you know, yeah, she's she's a really interesting, talented player, and obviously coming up behind Wozniacki, uh, and they've got Holger Rune as well, don't they, in the men's side, who, I, uh, yeah. who I've been told is a pretty pretty big guy to watch out for as well. Um, so, you know, it's always interesting seeing the kind of knockoff effect from these guys who get to world number one in their country, well, world number one from a certain country that doesn't necessarily have um, the greatest history, perhaps. And then you suddenly get spawned a couple of players behind them. Um, that that feels like it's happening with Denmark at the minute. Um, well, there's a, I mean, there's a staggering lack of depth in Denmark. Uh, Clara Towson, I believe, is the, the Danish number one at 90. She's up to 92 in the world, maybe, after that win. Uh, the Danish number two is Olga Humi, um, who hasn't quite snuck inside the world's top 900 at the moment. Um, <laughs> She'll get there, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, well, it, it won't take much, <laughs> put it that way. Uh, but she's, she's only 20. I mean, there's no disrespect <clears throat> to, to Olga Helmi. Um, she has been inside. She has been inside the top 850. Uh, just, just in case you're wondering, but you know, it, you, you're right. It, it, it's maybe a surprise there isn't more. You know, I know it's a small country and tennis isn't necessarily a big hit there. But yeah, you, when you've got someone like Kamen Wozniacki, who not only obviously a, a good player, but also quite a big celebrity. Um, you know, she, she's not, she wasn't just a nobody, and I imagine in Denmark was even bigger. So yeah, a bit of a surprise. Am I right in saying that the man you mentioned was he the, the first Dane to win like a tour level singles match in about three years or something? There was some ridiculous stat. I'll have to look at Runa. Olga Runa. Yeah, but he was, am I not right in saying that, that like no Danish man had won something absurd like a, a you know out of 500 for, for good i'm not power. sure did i said did he win one i know you had a big win the other week i didn't know whether it was in a 250 or whether it was a challenger tune in next week for more danish tennis news <laughs> <That's all I laughs> i haven't done sufficient research on this particular one and um, we should mention because we we're running against uh, one of the tv events of the year at the moment, uh, which is, of course, West Ham versus Leeds. Um, and, and also um, uh, a man called Harry and a woman called Megan, neither of whom have any other titles that they go by, uh, are currently airing their interview in the UK. Uh, but, but the kind of tennis angle to this is that um, Serena Williams is obviously a, a good friend of Meghan Markle and she's kind of um, been out speaking uh, about her. It's kind of significant that this happens on International Women's Day as well which makes me think that we really should have done more WCA stuff today. But, you know, I think <laughs> I think we have tried pretty hard to do a lot of women's stuff recently. Um, and there hasn't been a great deal of WTA action, to be fair, over the last week. Um, but Serena Williams talking about, you know, knowing firsthand the sexism and racism institutions of the media use to vilify women and people of colour to minimise us, to break us down, demonise us. Uh, we must recognise our obligation to decry malicious, unfounded gossip and tabloid journalism. I thought, given we have one of the leading exponents of unfounded gossip <laughs> in George Belfort here, um, oh, <laughs> it would be important. I mean, I guess what I wanted to say about it, all joking aside, is that it, it, it doesn't surprise us when Serena speaks up on these big issues. I know obviously she has a personal connection uh, to Meghan Markle, but you know, it's kind of just a reminder of, of the fact that Serena is bigger than just a tennis player, isn't she? Yeah, is is that for me? You want me to? Yeah, well, why not? You, for, you um, yeah, it is no surprise. I mean, it's always it's always a bit funny, kind of crossing into these main news waters. But I mean, some of the stuff today has been pretty. Uh, I think the response to this sort of thing has been pretty troubling for me. Um, I've I found some of the replies 
uh, Piers Morgan's the one that sticks out. Um, I don't really want to give him any airtime on this, but just, you know, kind of saying straight away he doesn't believe that she had suicidal thoughts and stuff. I, th- I think that's such a damaging narrative to be chucking out in mainstream media freely. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's always very difficult, isn't it, to necessarily say where exactly is the line between it being a racial issue and not it's clear in megan's account of what she's giving it you know stuff about the the child um and the question from the unnamed royal family member that um you know there was a distinct racial element there and you know i think you know we're all in the media and there have been countless examples where there have have been you know bad prejudices and perhaps uh, stereotypes lined into yeah, it. Yeah, uh, you know, definitely suffered in the hands of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Anyway. Um, there are other times where I, I don't think that has been the case and sometimes has been brought up. Um, and mm-hmm. that is that's that is the challenging side of the media in this sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get into a situation where I'm saying don't, believe everything that's said or whatever but you know there have been examples in my career where i've put something to a, an athlete and they've flat out denied it and i know it's true you know th- mm. there is also that's not about black or white athletes that's just general that that is the role of the media to athletes because on the one side they're trying to portray this image of themselves and this is true of federer this is true of serena this is true of novak this is true of rafa you know they want to present a different image to themselves, a lucrative image to themselves, that's not always the truth. And that's where, you know, that's our job to ask those questions and point out when those mysteries have been said. And, you know, it, it is very difficult sometimes to question certain things now um, with Serena. I, I do kind of take rightly, I've had people say to me before, look, you should never write anything negative about Serena because there's a greater good to it. And I, I, I disagree with that opinion. I think that would be doing my job badly to start doing that but it it's interesting waters i've probably gone very far off topic there but no i, I, I don't think that it's was... unreasonable i mean you know we, we're not talking about this this, this megan Markle and harry stuff anymore we're talking about the media's role as a whole and yeah you know it, it is a job that we have to to ask questions of people and to to kind of right wrongs and to try and out a bit of truth and okay not everyone's scrupulous about that but you know we can only do do what we think's right. Go on, George. The other thing I would say, and I wrote about this a little bit last year amidst some of the Wimbledon stuff and about the lack of representation at board level. Um, yeah. You know, in that in that piece, I, you know, I said pretty honestly, you know, there were, I think, fifteen people in the room, nine of whom were journalists. All of us were white men. You know, and that's yeah. that that's a problem. Um, you know, I, I've had conversations with people on the tour you know which is a pretty um, multi you know people from different origins different countries different belief systems different points of view who see things differently to how i see them and that's come from a, a white middle class privileged background where um you know maybe i haven't thought about something in the right way and i've read pieces from people who've written something i thought okay maybe i wasn't naturally leaning into that perspective i think i think that that's definitely somewhere the media has to improve. Like there has to be better representation. There has to be more people out there speaking to other journalists as well within it. You know, you do get stuck in your echo chamber. You do get stuck in, you know, 
our view of everything if it's all white men looking at it that that does become a problem um mm. so yeah I, I i totally understand what serena's written i think she's is great she's coming out in support of megan i i think megan's come out and said some pretty important things that needed airing as well even if i i can't stand the monarchy i have to say it normally doesn't interest me in the slightest and i think it's a terrible institution but some of the wider points that have come with this i think have been worth raising and it's good we've praised people like goff and osaka as well for coming out on these sort of issues and i think that's only a good thing for sports to put their voices out there and use their platforms for good very long answer (laughs) yeah i almost forgot where you started but uh you're you're right i can't disagree i can't disagree with you too much and it's one of those ones where there's a lot more to be said and and maybe we're not the people or the place to say it but um you, you can find plenty of that elsewhere other good political journalists are available um, should we argue about the ATP ranking system? Because I've got a real beer in my bonnet about it. Well, no, I, mean, I, I don't have that much of a beer in my bonnet about it. I just think it's... They, they've changed the ranking system again. Um, so you now have a choice uh, where you can either go and play a tournament and get some points and be rewarded for winning tennis matches, uh, or you can stay at home and take 50% of the points that you won in that tournament last year. I think I'm right in saying that. Uh, Calvin, as far as I can tell, this is going to make it a nightmare if you're trying to move up or indeed down the rankings. Yeah, I don't know why they've done it. It's ridiculous. There was nothing wrong with the ranking system. As far as I know, it's, it was one of the smartest ranking systems around. Um, it, it's always get, you know, The thing what you have to ask with any ranking system, does it give a fair reflection of who is where they are in the world standing? And mm. it's, a, it's a meritocracy. Any, any sport is a meritocracy. And tennis, tennis's ranking systems work superbly at that. The best yeah. player is at number one in the rankings. The fifth best player is at number five in the rankings. If you take it over a sort of, you know, the odd week, it might be a bit all over the shop. But overall, it's where it is. When you compare that to, say, boxing, where we have no ranking system at all, <laughs> or, 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 or snooker is another one that cracks me up, where... You can win the world championship and not be, and, and then have to qualify for it next year because there's only about four what they call ranking tournaments, that yeah. kind of thing. It, it's ludicrous, and I've just no idea why the ATP thought they should have to be changing things and doing this. And and as usual, they've got previous in this, lest we forget that sort of two years ago that the the ITF changed their ranking system. It was a complete disaster. And it lasted about five months before they had to accept and go back to what it was previously. In the ATP's defence, this is only meant to last five months. So I think I'm right in saying it's meant to come back in yeah, August. But we've, okay. we've, we've already had like, what, a, a year yeah. of, of ultimate. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, but what, my, problem, my problem is that if you only have it, okay, yeah, it's only going to be for the next five months, but it still takes another year to then like wear off yeah. all the after yeah. effects of that. Like the after effect, because of the one year lag, which is right, it means that the after effects of you maintaining points, yeah, it means that we're going to get to the middle of summer next year and there'll be blokes getting into main draw of Wimbledon on the basis of points that they earned two years ago and more. Or sorry, just under two years ago. You know, if you have a good, you have a good sunshine, a good like summer swing on hard courts in 2020 you might get into 22 main draw on the basis of that, which is absurd. I'd be interested to know who exactly is the target for this at the minute. I mean, there is obviously like restrictions on 
travel presumably from some countries but i'm not i can't really think of a a high profile case of someone who's not able to get there do you know i I think it's hitting it's hitting the lower guys pretty bad there's a there's a french guy just through where i work there's a french lad called evan finesse who if you look at his results from since about April last year. It's an interesting one, Chad. He's a French lad, but his dad's from Sheffield, and he was brought up in Sheffield a lot of the time. But he's basically won almost every tournament he's played since about September of last year. And he's moved up about 20 places because no one's moving down. No one's moving down. and, and, And it's just, you know, you sort of keep thinking, everyone keeps saying, why is Evan still playing in 15Ks, 25Ks? It's because he can't get anything higher. His ranking isn't going up. And well, that's if, just sort of one example. If, if, if you want the best example, actually, it's probably the bloke we spoke about at the start of the show. But, I mean, Federer shouldn't have a ranking this week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Should he? Yeah, he has a legitimate excuse. Yeah, he'd, he'd have a protected ranking, but he would be without yeah. a ranking formally this week mm. if, he were, yeah. if he were coming back. I mean, that, obviously, that wouldn't really matter in the long run, but... Uh, that Murray, is, well. Murray as well, actually. Yeah. Mur- Murray um, as well. Murray it's... would have... His it's points Vienna from point. it'd have the it's points Vienna. from the middle of last year, wouldn't they? I guess where he beat in the summer and yeah, yeah, but, yeah. the US Open series. Yeah, but yeah. He, he'd be doing okay. But yeah, it's just you know it's kind of absurd. Uh, but you know, let's not devote any more time to mistakes made than we have to. Uh, just finally, we alluded to it a little bit earlier in the show, but uh, week one of the UK Pro League uh, was completed yesterday. Sadly, uh, Calvin's charge, Luke Johnson suffered an ankle injury. Um, during his second match, uh, which we we hear Calvin means that he's feeling slightly sorry for himself and currently trying to negotiate the complications of tournament withdrawals and non-withdrawals and things. But we won't, we won't get bogged down in that. Let, let's tell some good news stories. Um, I see there are three unbeaten players over the week. Uh, Alicia Barnett, Emily Appleton and Dan Cox. Um, any of them in particular stand out to you as having had a surprisingly good week? Um, well, Emily Appleton was the only one who was actually unbeaten um, because the other two lost in the... It goes to, through the week, you have the group stages Monday to Friday and then you have the playoffs at the weekend. So Dan Cox lost to Josh Paris in the semis um, mm. in straight sets and Lissy Barnett lost um, to... She lost to Beth Gray in the semis as well uh, in, a I think, something like 12-10 in a tie-break. So... Um, I'd like Emily to say that's straight, up, that's straight up my mistake, but the UK Pro League results website is a little bit difficult to navigate, which is right. which is why I've made that boo uh, Tell us about the two champions of week one then. Um, so Emily Appleton won the ladies. Um, she went, I'm not sure she even lost a set in the whole uh, wow. event, actually. She played quite well. She's got um, Emily's sort of her dad used to be a very good player um, and she's from a sort of tennis background. She won junior nationals a few years ago and uh, sort of kept playing. She sort of ch- chugs away. She's got a big serve, the decent forehand, plays a lot of doubles, skillful player. Um, and she sort of, she played quite well last week. Um, mm. And in the men's event was really close. There was, there was just a hell of a lot of close matches. These sort yeah. of champions tie breaks that they played, they sort of, they, they make it, it sort of throws a lot of cats among the pigeons, really. Um, and Josh Paris came out on top. Um, he was probably the middle, ran about middle of the field in terms of ranking um, at the start of the week. Um, he lost the match in the groups, lost a close match to Anton Matusevic, who was the highest ranked player. Um, 
made the semis and then had um, had a good win in the semis against Dan Cox. And then Billy Harris, who he beat in the final, beat Anton Matusevic in the semi um, in a Champions tiebreak again. And then Josh took care of Billy in the final. Would you say overall a, a success? I mean, a, a, there were a couple of a couple of slips and injuries, but I think that was a coincidence. Yeah, both on the same baseline, but two ankle injuries in two days both happened on the same baseline as well. But um, yeah, I, I think just just sort of coincidence, really. Um, but yeah, it, it was a good event. Um, they, they, it was on the, the, the it was on the TV on Red Button on BT for the first five days, and then the weekend was on. They televised the whole thing, 12 hours of footage Saturday and 12 hours on Sunday um, mm. on BT Sport, which was good for people to see a bit of domestic tennis, and the level was, was really good. Um, there was no... The only sort of thing that... that I, I was there... I've obviously been there at most of these weeks, and I was there for the first two days. The only strange thing in in these tournaments were that players call their own lines, which I quite like, <laughs> but because of the camera angle where it's at, People will know, tennis fans will know that tennis players tend not to, they don't say anything when they call lines, they point their finger. Um, and so a lot of the times when when balls were close to the line, you'd have no idea who'd won the point immediately. <laughs> you, haven't got a, you haven't got a call and there's nothing visible. And, and gossip, if it's at the far end, they're just sort of sticking their finger out. And, and you didn't really know what you'd have to wait for the umpire to give the call. Um, so that, I found that quite strange. Um, I don't know whether whether they're going to have to start telling the players you have to say something when you call the ball. Um, I mean, this is this is kind of this is the problem with the automatic Hawkeye stuff in Australia as well. Is that yeah. the, the call sounds just like a player shouting ah yeah and. You don't have the visual thing. I mean, I mean, it's a genuine concern. If automatic Hawkeye, for example, becomes you know, commonplace, which I think it probably will, give it whether it's a year or five years or ten years, you're going to have to be something visual, you know, whether... I don't exactly know what the solution is, you know, an umpire holding out a little flag. Um, I yeah. would actually be really in favour of that. Anything that gets more flags... <laughs> <before. laughs> it, it, it was strange at Loughborough as well, because the camera, where they put the camera, was actually quite far away from the court. It was further away than what you'd normally get on a tennis match. So a serve sort of a serve in particular which they don't even serves because they're so fast they don't even have to be that close if they're anywhere near the line the players know but we don't know if that makes it yeah. especially on the long, long <coughs> ones so yeah I think if if tennis really wants to recreate its full entertainment value it should sack off Hawkeye Live and just let players call their own lines anyway, I think. It always... <laughs> I've, I've, I've said this many a times. I'd, I'd love to see that happen, where players call their own. You can have, they, can have, they can still have the two challenges on Hawkeye, and let, let's, let's let that go. And you've still got an umpire. If there's a shocker, the umpire can overrule and they can challenge it. I'd, I'd love to see it. It'd definitely just bring... It'd be more like football. Like, you know, if, imagine if... Like, you know, we all know there's a bit of diving goes on in football. There's a bit of gamesmanship, and I'd, I'd quite like to see it. Um, the only thing I'd say about about the pro league as well is, uh, I because it's it's sort of domestic event and it's a bit different. I wish they'd have gone a little bit further and changed the format. The format is quite good because it's a league format; everyone plays. I'd I'd like to see them change the scoring system a little bit more. Maybe go to like we have in the um, in the next gen, where it's best of five, first of four games, just so it separates it from the main tour and the players feel like they're playing in something a little bit different. Um, mm. just, just an idea, and I think it, you have more you have more big points for the for the for the um, the spectator as well in that situation. Mm. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely an opportunity though, um, and, and you know, a chance for your players at that level to to earn a bit of money. I know that the cash is quite decent. Yeah, four grand, um, four grand for the winner yesterday. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of money. When you look at the whole tournament, what is it? It's it's eight different tournaments over yeah. the couple of months. That's money that yeah. just wouldn't exist in te- in British tennis otherwise. You know, it's new well, it's, money going into the game. That's nearly three times as much as you'd get for winning a fifteen k futures event. So yeah. it, it's it's absolute. But that says more about the state of the finances at the fifth at the lower echelons of the men's futures tournaments. Fifteen k. Yeah. Just for anybody who doesn't know, that has not changed since nineteen ninety four. Wow. So um, the 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 15k futures, they used to have a 10k as well below that, but now mm-hmm. 15k's the they still had 15k's in 1994, and that just means the total prize money from that tournament is fifteen thousand dollars. So that has not changed since 1994, and if you factor in how much hotel bills have changed, how much airfares have changed, you can see how tough it is for these guys. I was just going to say in a week where we're talking about nurses pay not going up above inflation yeah. that 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 really is hammered home just how yeah how and especially when right when rally appelk is talking about that's two weeks in a low that I, two weeks in a row that i've lost money I, I really struggle with stuff like that because he he will have come through that level of tournament as well so he will know that losing money for two weeks but then i mean he's just he's literally just been given fifty thousand pounds at the australian open yeah. so um, and that's, I don't even know where he lost. I think he might have won a match there or something as well. The American men do love bringing out very Absolutely old economic arguments. John Isner yeah. is a, a big proponent of... Uh, well, yeah, think... John, John Isner was on one at Wimbledon, I think, or yeah. maybe two, two years ago, where he was talking about if, if he lost in the first round, this is how much money he'd have. And it's like, well, one, don't rent a house. There are plenty of hotels in London. That you mm. that you can stay in nice hotels as well, and don't bring a team of about six people with you. Oh, and please. also, John is there's not losing first round at Wimbledon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he he also failed to mention in his economic analysis that Wimbledon give them about two hundred quid a day anyway to yeah, stay. Absolutely, that's, yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly. Out. Yeah, and and on top of that, money for food as well. Yeah, they they have yeah, it tough. These guys. They should try being job. in the media. John Isner, yeah. John Isner hasn't lost in the first round of Wimbledon for ten years. Yeah, exactly. so I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he didn't fancy his chances, but um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite. Well, so much more we could have talked about, but um, our time has run out. Uh, thank you very much, George. Thank you very much, Calvin. Remember, if you're listening back on the podcast, um, please do uh, come find us live on Locker Room. You can download the app, the Locker Room app, and listen to us live every Monday at nine o'clock. If you're listening on Locker Room, please do find the podcast download it otherwise you might miss us and as always give us a follow on twitter at love tennis pod uh, we'll be back next week cheers, cheers guys bye sports social podcast network